I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Mary Hines. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Tapestry. Next week, it's the big finale, taped in front of a live studio audience here at the CBC. This week, it's something a little different. My Tapestry colleagues are taking over. The show's producers are always so busy behind the scenes every week. Today, they're going to be right here in the host's chair, and I'm going to be watching from the control room. Here they are now, Tapestry producers Armon Egbali, McKenna Hadley, Burke and Rosie Fernandez. Well, this feels weird. Yeah, we're not usually the ones on this side of the mic, but uh, hello everyone. For those listening, I'm Rosie Fernandez, and we have a few stories to share today. Uh, I'm really excited to hear yours, actually. Well, my story is about a gift, which I thought was appropriate for this time of the year. Um, And working on tapestry has always been a kind of gift. But once I got something quite unexpected, a poem. I love the poem right from the beginning. It's an informal poem, and it brings me to tears literally every time I, I read the poetry. It's the most personal, and it's, it's such a beautiful sentiment. It says, don't take yourself too seriously. And some of the lines in it I, I, I still quote. The problem is that halfway through I usually choke up a little bit because I know it sounds weird, but it, it resonates with me. That was Bill Ruddlemeyer, owner of Southbrook Vineyards in Niagara. And you'll hear the poem and all the surprising twists and turns that it took in a little bit. What do you have for us, Armand? Hey, yeah. So as we prepare to say goodbye to Tapestry, I've been thinking about how to actually say it. Maybe I'm overthinking it. But I called poet Michael Peterson, who's a master of language, and he's known for, maybe infamous is the right word, for his exuberant toodaloos. And for him, the very words you used to say so long matter a lot. You know, you're telling someone how much the moments that passed before you meant to you, how you cherish them, how you hold them with you. You're telling them good luck out there. I feel at the same time, in the absence, we've just probably been intimately close together. We're saying goodbye. We know lives are wild and varied, and we know we're setting some of our dear people off into into the emotional abyss. So later in the show, author Michael Peterson offers us a bit of advice on saying goodbye. McKenna, you have a story about someone struggling to say goodbye as well, right? Yeah, I do. It's funny that we're all kind of talking about goodbye, right, as we kind of say hello to the audience for the first time. I wanted to talk to someone who was equally invested in how we learn to let go. So I reached out to Wendy McNaughton. She was the artist in residence at a hospice house in San Francisco, where goodbyes were pretty common. I was very afraid of death. I was afraid to be around it. I was afraid to talk about it. I was afraid to look at it. And I've found that drawing is a way that I can look closely at things, things that otherwise I might be uncomfortable looking at kind of gives me this both excuse and a superpower at the same time. 
The experience at the hospice house led Wendy to create a book all about navigating final farewells called How to Say Goodbye. More from Wendy McNaughton coming up in this special episode on the art of saying goodbye. Welcome to Tapestry. And just for today, we are not Mary Hines. Now that the show is nearing its end, I was wondering, what have been some of your favorite stories working on the show? Armand, what, what would you say? Rosie, it's it's funny when you work on a radio show. I, I think no matter how special a segment is, um, they all kind of fade together after a while. Um, but there's one episode I think about a lot, and it has to be David Deutsch. He's a renowned physicist at the University of Oxford and one of the fathers of quantum mechanics. And I have to admit, I didn't know any of that when I called him. He was literally just the first person who answered the phone. I sent him an email, and he was there on the other end of the line. Yeah, I remember that day because <laughs> you were new to the team, and this was one of your first items that you were doing for Tapestry, and it turned out to be much bigger than we thought. Armand spent the weekend researching and reading David Deutsch's work so that he'd be able to explain what was going on when we were writing The Green. So I remember that. Kudos to you, Armand. I, it was a bit of a heart attack moment once I looked up his bio and went, oh, yeah, we're going to have a lot of questions for this guy. And <laughs> it's funny because there's one moment in the interview, despite all the high-minded stuff that we talked about in the episode, we've been talking about AI and ethics and these big picture questions. And and David Deutsch also happens to be this like master of the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. So Mary jumps in with this question. I was really outraged is going to be too strong a word, but I, I was very bothered by the fact that young Spock could meet old Spock in one of the rebooted Star Trek movies. Because I, I grew up on the science fiction that said, this is not possible. And it was explained away to me as, well, that's because of the multiverse. Is that why young Spock can meet old Spock? Because of the multiverse theory? So we don't know whether uh, space-time allows travel into the past. It might, it might not. Uh, we, we just don't understand the interaction between quantum theory and general relativity that well yet. But let's, on the assumption that it is possible, then yes, it is known that if that is possible, then uh, when one traveled back in time, one would always travel into the past uh, of a different universe. And therefore, um, young Spock could meet the old Spock of another universe, but not of his own. So my outrage was fairly well-placed. I thought they were occupying the same universe, which which cannot happen. Yes, uh, I... <laughs> I don't think one should get that outraged over science fiction. <laughs> oh, you've come to the wrong place, <laughs> but, Dr. Deutsch. Uh... Anyway, that's mine. What about you, McKenna? You know, it's funny that Rosie mentioned that this was one of your first pieces you did on Tapestry because I'm also going to share one of the first pieces I did on Tapestry. I think, you know, sometimes these inaugural radio pieces that you do when you join a new team, they really stick with you because they're they're this introduction into a new world and a new way of producing. And one of my favorite parts about being on Tapestry is the fact that in addition to these phenomenal interviews that Mary gets to host, we also produce these many kind of profound short documentaries and intimate stories. And so uh, this one that I did early on in my time at Tapestry, it's about unexpected fatherhood and for me, it just epitomizes that saying of when you know, you know. 
and I bolted out of the apartment, uh, ran down the block, and I saw the flashing lights of the police cars in the distance, and I realized that, you know, they had shown up. Danny was standing at the top of the steps, and I said, where's the baby? And he just sort of turned and looked down the subway steps, and just at that moment, uh, two police officers were um, carrying the baby up the stairs, and it was totally surreal and unreal, and, you know, he really did find this real baby in, in the subway and just goosebumps everywhere all over me. Danny had to stick around for like two hours or so because uh, he kept getting interviewed by one police officer after another. I think I said to him at one point, I said, you know, I think you're going to be connected to this baby for the rest of your life. And by extension, me. If the baby was going to be in his life, the baby would be in my life too. This was such a great story. And I remember when we put it on the website, we put it on Father's Day and it shot up to the top of the charts. It was everyone wanted to hear this story. Um, and I remember hearing it for the first time. And it was such a beautiful, just as you said, like this story of unexpected fatherhood of people coming together and deciding to take on child rearing in a moment where they really hadn't expected to or maybe even wanted to um, prior to that to that decision. And another fun fact, McKenna actually won a Gabriel Award for this documentary, so can't wait to hear it again. Yeah, it's those moments of great uncertainty. They just give me goosebumps, you know? So that was mine. How about you, Rosie? Oh, my gosh. it's There's so many. It's hard to choose. But there are guests I'll never forget, like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was amazing, writer Julian Barnes, um, the botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer. But one interview stayed with me was Canadian-Armenian opera singer Isabel Bayraktarian. She spoke to us about an album that she had made, uh, and she jokingly blamed all of the opera plots that she had to perform, where the character makes a pact with the devil as the inspiration for what she did. Mm -hmm. When her mother got sick, she made a sort of pact with God. And she said to God, if you take care of my mom, I'll sing about your mom. So in return for making sure that her mother was okay after a very serious operation, she recorded an album of old Armenian liturgical songs dedicated to Mary. And this is a clip of one of her songs. This is called Mother of Light. That was Isabel Bayraktarian singing Mother of Light from her album, Mother of Light. That was such a great conversation. And we actually kind of had it twice because we found her when we were doing an episode kind of around the Junos. And then I remember not long after we had this reaction to her conversation where it was like, we we did this for five minutes. We need to do it for like two hours. And we brought her back on and she was incredible. Like going back to that episode, especially right now, I think it's such a heartwarming beautiful look at someone just using their whole soul to perform music. Beautifully said, Armand. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing, everyone. Let's begin with our stories today.
We're in the holiday season, so I thought about presenting you a story that I pulled from the CBC archives about an unexpected gift that just kept on giving. And that gift was a poem dedicated to me. Here's Sukyun Lee, musician, filmmaker, and former host of CBC Radio's DNTO. Hey, so Rosie, you have been holding out on us. I know now that your name has an incredible story. You told us the story a couple weeks ago. In fact, your name has taken on a life of its own. That's right. It's gone off independently and had this amazing little journey. Um, but the thing is that I never really liked my name in particular. Because as a kid, there's no real famous Rosie role model to kind of look up to, except for maybe Rosie the Riveter. So I never really liked the name. Right, the feminist woman with her arm in the air. That's right. Yeah, but you were like, what? As a kid, you don't get that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, seven years ago, I called up a poet, Wendy Morton. She lives out in Victoria, B.C., and I was going to interview her for CBC. So I I called her up, and I said, hi, my name is Rosie Fernandez, and I'd like to interview you. And then I said, if I had a name like yours, my life would have been entirely different. Yes, And you also said, I think your name is a poem. Yes, I probably did say that. So what was it about my name that that struck you? Well, because I have a name that is uninteresting, like Wendy Morton. It doesn't represent who I am, it seems to me. And so I wanted your name. (laughs) I was jealous, actually. And I thought, if I had a name like yours, my life would have been different because I could have done more outrageous things than I actually ended up doing. So I thought, well, here is this here is this fabulous name, Rosie Fernandez. You know, it has so much elegance and spark. And then I just sat down and wrote your poem. If I had a name like Rosie Fernandez, I would wear gardenias and orchids in my hair. I would buy some hot sauce called Jump Up and Kiss Me. I would offer it to strangers. I would know how to tango. I would sing anywhere. I would tap dance on sidewalks. I would fall in love insistently, spend hours in cafes with a broken heart and good coffee. Oh, if I had a name like Rosie Fernandez... I would know it. Holy. (laughs) Okay, poet Wendy Morton is so inspired by your name, Rosie Fernandez. Even the way she says it, Rosie Fernandez. (laughs) How did it make you feel knowing that another woman, Wendy Morton, was so enamored and taken by the the name that you loathed? It, It was really surprising. It really made me rethink my name. <laughs> it made me think, wait, is there something I'm not getting here? <laughs> why Should why? I be dancing on the tables? <laughs> yeah, it was really surprising. So Wendy pens this poem, an ode to you. How did it go over? It was a huge success. And in fact, Wendy calls it her legacy poem because it just connects with so many people. She reads it at the end of her poetry readings. It's the one she presents. She brings it to workshops and asks students to write poems called If I Had a Name Like. And she carries the poem around in her wallet on her checkbook so that if she meets someone and introduces herself as a poet, she says, and these, this is one of my poems. And she reads the Rosie Fernandez poem. So for Wendy, this is the poem of her career. And I asked her why she thinks this poem was such a big hit. 
because people get it immediately because everybody has these lovely longings to be somebody else or to have another name that would allow them to, you know, tap dance on sidewalks or by jump up and kiss me hot sauce and offer it to strangers. I want to do things that are daring. I don't want to be afraid anymore. And that's what this poem is about, isn't it? About not being afraid anymore. So your name, Rosie Fernandez, unleashes incredible bravery and risk-taking for Wendy Morton. Yes, which is surprising. I don't consider myself that much of a risk taker. <laughs> but I guess having another name allows you that space to be someone else. That's what she's seeing all over your name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is funny. I don't see that. So then what happened? So then Wendy published the poem, and then she posted it on her official poet's website. And there it was discovered by graphic designer Laura Wills. She was working with Southbrook Vineyards there in Niagara, Ontario, and they're in a little boutique organic vineyard and they have an exclusive line of wines called the Poetica series and the idea was to put poems on the labels of the wine. So it was up to Laura to find these poems. So I did a, a, a big study actually. It was it took me a, a long time. I sat down for hours really and days and read poems and you know I'd finished reading you know some BP Nichols, some Ann Carson, some Margaret Atwood, you know some serious heavyweights. And then I encountered a woman who had never heard of, Wendy Morton. And this poem, if I had a name like Rosie Fernandez, I started reading it. And I can remember just this smile breaking out of my face and thinking, that's perfect. You almost clap your hands with glee when you read that poem. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, we need to have this on a label. Rosie, you are the only human being I know whose name is on a fancy bottle of wine. Yes, and it's even a famous wine label. It was featured in a book called The Art of the Wine Label. It looks at influential modern wine labels all over the world. And there's a whole page dedicated to the If I Had a Name Like Rosie Fernandez <laughs> wine label. That is fantastic. Yeah, and um, Bill Riddlemeyer, owner of Southbrook, and his wife, Marilyn, they told me that the wine was a bestseller for them, and partly was because of the story behind the poem. I loved the poem right from the beginning. It's an informal poem, and it brings me to tears literally every time I, I read the poetry. It's the most personal, and it's, it's such a beautiful sentiment. It says, don't take yourself too seriously. And some of the lines in it, I, I, I still quote. Problem is that halfway through, I usually choke up a little bit because it's, I know it sounds weird, but it, it resonates with me. The thing is, I never particularly like my name. But why didn't you like Rosie Fernandez? I just kind of had that feeling I never really liked it. And then I started to think, why didn't I actually like it? And I think it was because the next question invariably was, where are you from? Right. And it's like all of a sudden, boom, I'm not part of the group anymore. I'm right. from somewhere else and I have to tell them, even though I was born in Kitchener like the rest of them. <laughs> right? All of a sudden, you know, that's the Canadian experience now. Yeah. But at the time when you're a kid. Well, as kids, the, the thing we want more than anything else is to not be different. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking. This is what I'm so impressed about, the, you know, how this whole, the poem has had its own life. Yeah. Is that 
When Wendy said, you know, oh, I think your name is a poem. I like your name. There was no follow-up. There was no who are you, where are you from? It was just, I like the name. And the poem is just, I like the name. Yeah. And so it's like, wow, that can happen. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a name like Rosie Fernandez, I would wear gardenias and orchids in my hair. I would buy some hot sauce. I would sauce buy some hot called sauce called Jump Up and Kiss Me. I would offer it to strangers. If I had a name like Rosie Fernandez, I would know how I to I would tango. know how to tango. I would sing anywhere. I would tap dance on sidewalks. I would fall in love insistently, spend hours in cafes. Spend hours in cafes with a broken heart and good coffee. Oh, if I had a name like Rosie Fernandez, I would know it. So dramatic. When you hear everyone's interpretations in what they see and feel in your name, how does it make you feel? It really makes me think that a name can have so many different connotations for different people. Um, people can see different things in the same thing. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting how everyone connects to it, but everyone sees something a little differently because for Wendy, it's about not being afraid. For Bill, it was not taking yourself too seriously. For me, it's like, hey, your name can just be accepted as a name and it can just be appreciated for just how it sounds and what it, it is without your personal history attached to it. So there's something new there for everyone just from a name. Yeah. And I mean, for the kid who grew up in Kitchener, who was kind of embarrassed about kind of being Spanish and not fitting in, knowing that it elicited such inspiration from all these people, does it? how does it change the way you feel about your own name? It makes me like my name more. It really does. There's There have been times I thought, oh, maybe I should take my husband's last name. Maybe I should change it. I should. But now I'm like, no, it's, it is a good name, darn it. <laughs> it's just made me appreciate it in a different way. And does it inspire you to dance on tables or are you like, hey, no, it's my name? Oh, no, I'm, I'm Spanish. I do flamenco dancing. Yes, that <laughs> dancing on tables is acceptable. <laughs> Done. That's a given. That's a Thank given. you so much, Rosie. <laughs> Thank you. That was the story of the poem, If I Had a Name Like Rosie Fernandez, from the CBC Radio Archives. Goodbyes, especially the big final ones, can be difficult and scary. But instead of turning away, one artist used her craft to face her fear and get up close and personal with people at the end of their lives. Here's Wendy McNaughton on learning the art of the final goodbye. Drawing is a shortcut to connection. Drawing is a way that we can use our bodies to open our hearts and really see everything and everyone that is around us and connect with it in a real way. And after you've drawn somebody, you will never forget them. When people think about drawing, I think a lot of people think of the object that hangs on a wall or is in a book. We think about the outcome, the drawing itself. I believe that drawing is something that we do, 
and it is an experience and puts us into a different frame of mind and heart. When we're drawing something from life, it forces us to slow down. It forces us to look closely at something and see it in a way that we would never normally see it. We see it in its fullness, in all of its details, in all its relationship to everything around it. We engage all of our senses when we're really drawing and we're using our bodies, right? When we're drawing, drawing isn't something we just do by looking in our eyes. We're doing it with our hands. We're doing it with our arms. We're doing it with our breath. And so when we're drawing somebody and we're looking so closely and deeply at them and we're using our bodies to process what we're seeing, I mean, our bodies is how we, that's where we hold all of our feelings and, and through motion is a lot of times how we can process some of the deeper feelings that we hold inside that we don't want to necessarily touch. We're afraid of saying goodbye for me is the hardest thing. I am not good at letting go. I love who I love and I'm, and I want to hold on to it and I really struggle with saying goodbye. When I entered the residency at Zen Hospice, I thought that I was going to be mostly focused on the residents themselves, on the people who were dying. And I was going to draw them and I was going to ask them stories about their lives and ask them what it was like to be at this final, final stage in, in their lives and learn from that. I ended up being drawn to the caregivers who are there, the hospice nurses and the support staff who've made it their life's work to support people in this last chapter of their life and also support the people around them, their loved ones, in letting go and saying goodbye. The Zen Hospice guest house, which has since closed, at the time it was a six-bed hospice house in San Francisco in a beautiful old Victorian home. When I would start a day drawing there, I'd walk up the steps, ring the bell. Somebody maybe who was working in the kitchen would come out and, and open the door and welcome me in. There'd be fresh flowers sitting in the entryway and beautiful artwork on the walls. If there had been somebody who had been there maybe for a couple days or even a few weeks, maybe even longer, maybe a couple months, we got to know each other pretty well, so we'd sit down and just chat, you know, and hang out. Other people might be in a very different place, and I would just go sit quietly in a room with them. And then I would sit and I would talk with the nurses, and I would draw the whole time. Whenever there was something that caught my eye, my attention, there was a moment, I would open up my sketchbook and I would draw whatever I saw. I went in thinking this was going to be a story about the residents, and what ended up unfolding was a whole exploration into the wisdom of these hospice caregivers who were there. So it was pretty far along in the process that I said, oh, I see what I've been drawing, and I see what people have been sharing with me. This is, this is the heart of it. It's more like a poem than it is a book. It's just, you know, a few words per page. And when you read it all the way through, 
you can't help but slow down. And that's like the pace at the guest house, at the Zen Hospice guest house. It's the pace of the bedside. It's slow. It's not about getting to the end, learning something and moving on. It's about really being present with the person who we're there with. When somebody's dying, there's nothing to do. It's really a time to be close with someone. So how can we get close? How can we open ourselves up? Someone named Roy, working at Zen Hospice, um, he was training all of the volunteers. And he shared with me these five things that we can say to somebody at the end of life. We can honestly say them anytime. If we're looking to make sure that everything has been said between us, that nothing's going to go unsaid and we don't have any regrets around that, we can say these five things. I forgive you. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. And goodbye. If we can say these five things, we will help open a space of connection and presence and feel that nothing has gone unsaid between us after somebody's gone. Not all of us have the good fortune to be in the room with somebody who we love. Some people, we lose them and we don't get to say goodbye. But these are things that we can keep in conversation with with our loved ones. We can say it after they've passed. We can also say it long in advance, before. These are conversations that we can take outside into our life and say these five things to somebody today. Well, and so on the note of someone you love, you know, at the center of this story of writing this book, of doing the residency is, you know, one particular loss. Can you tell me about your aunt and just who she was to you? My aunt Tildy was a very, <laughs> so funny, you know, I actually don't often get asked who was Tildy. People just kind of ask like about the person who died in this, um, My aunt Tildy, my father's sister, was a kindergarten teacher and an artist, and she was somebody who's very close to me. I loved her very much. She had Parkinson's, and at the end of her life, she received hospice care. And she was the first person, as she was dying, that I was able to be and had the honor to be at the bedside with. I visited her and spent time with her every day um, as she was dying. And up until that point, I was very afraid of death. I was afraid to be around it. I was afraid to talk about it. I was afraid to look at it. And I've found that drawing is a way that I can look closely at things. Things that otherwise I might be uncomfortable looking at kind of gives me this both excuse and a superpower at the same time. 
And so when I was sitting with my aunt, I found myself uncomfortable looking at her. Literally, I was afraid to look at my aunt. It was new, it was scary. I didn't want to feel like I was objectifying her, but I also wanted to really study my aunt's face because I don't want to forget it. So I pulled out my um, sketch pad and my pencil and I began drawing her. And I drew her almost, yeah, I drew her every day up until the day she passed. And those drawings form a through line in this book, How to Say Goodbye. When Zen Hospice called, my Aunt Tildy had probably passed away maybe 24, 48 hours before. It's like sometimes like the, the universe calls, you know? I was in a very um, open and surreal headspace. I think there's two times in life when we're in this kind of space. It's when somebody's born and when somebody dies that we're really connected to the biggest questions and like the um, the deepest answers maybe in our life. And I was in that space of wonder and Zen Hospice called and said, we have an artist residency program and we're wondering if you would like to come I mean, you do not say no to the universe when, when that happens. I think the time I spent at Zen Hospice opened up a space for questions in me that I was afraid to ask because I just want to be able to tell the people that I love that I love them and be able to really be there without the fear being in the way. When I draw somebody, I do not forget them. I can draw a stranger on the street and see him two years later, and I will remember their face. I just don't want to forget people while I'm alive. And maybe drawing is my way of remembering and keeping people in my heart so that even if I do have to say goodbye, that I know that they're always with me. I have a really hard time saying goodbye, but I guess I should say it. So thank you and goodbye. Wendy McNaughton is an artist, graphic journalist, trained social worker, and author of How to Say Goodbye. She spoke to you from Oakland, California. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on SiriusXM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. And though the show is ending, our show webpage will remain online at cbc.ca slash tapestry. I've never been great about saying goodbye. I mean that literally. I hover around doorways, I gesture with my hands, but the words never come out the way I want them to. But now that Tapestry is facing a real, true idea, I have a real problem. 
How do you send off a radio show? How do you reflect on the time that you spent working on it with the people who made it? All of this reminded me of one of my fondest farewells, Michael Peterson. I talked to Peterson in 2022 for a story about friendship, and ever since then, I've been tickled at the way he says goodbye. And so I called him up for some advice on how to say some final words. I have these really quirky sign-offs on emails, and I think I exist better in sign-offs and emails. So with lollies and luster is one I like to move, leave people with. Also, um, with lilted love, I like to leave them with a love that sings and lilts. Uh, a bit of a Scottish one is with muckle mirth. Muckle being a big, great gargantuan serving of mirth. Off you zest into the world. Have a great Yuletide ride is a good one for this festive season as well. I like to think of people sort of uh, tobogganing through the festive season. Um, they never end, you know, I like to keep mixing them around. I like alliteration in them as well though, like Ace to the Acme. They're, they're overwhelmingly positive. Some people would say uh, uh, contentiously so. <laughs> I would love to have a contentiously positive goodbye. But before I tried riffing from the master... I wanted to start at the basics. It's a whole sort of plethora of dialogues at once, isn't it? You know, you're telling someone how much the moments that pass before you meant to you, how you cherish them, how you hold them with you. You're telling them good luck out there. I feel at the same time, in the absence, we've just probably been intimately close together. We're saying goodbye. We know lives are wild and varied, and we know we're setting some of our dear people off into, into the emotional abyss. So we want to bolster them up. We want to remind them that we're still with them, I think, from that perspective. But of course, there's other goodbyes. There's other goodbyes which are the, the final severance, the final closure, something that we hope fortifies us or provides us with a, an armory to go on without them, if that is the case. There's so many different tongues, vernaculars and languages in the goodbye. It's in the gesture, it's in the word, it's in the physicality of it. It's in the silences, it's in the hold, the linger, all of it. It's such a cacophony of feeling and emotion. Think the goodbye can become really automated in our life because of the way we use it in a professional capacity. And I think we have to be so careful not to take the automation, the mechanical benignity of the goodbye uh, we use professionally into our personal lives. Because in, I guess, in the bigger life or death scale, on the more severe end of the spectrum, it could be the last time you say goodbye to that person. You never know what the vicissitudes of this world are bringing our way. So there is something in the goodbye. But then to say the complete opposite of that, to turn turtle it, I think... If we weren't aware of it being the last goodbye we said to someone, then it's important also not to put too much meaning in it because they probably won't reflect on the way you said goodbye to them. They'll reflect on all of the moments that punctuated your life together that came before that, the reason that you're there together, the reason that a goodbye is even necessary under those circumstances. So it's such a colossal but also a brilliant way of, of greeting someone. And I think it is a greeting, even though you're saying farewell, that is still a greeting. They're carrying it with them. This is something Michael knows personally. The first time I talked to Michael was about his book, Boyfriends, which is a long goodbye to his friend Scott. 
Scott passed away suddenly, and what were once mutual cheerios became a very one-sided farewell. You know, it felt at first horrible, at first isolating, but then very nurturing. nurturing. I mean, I wrote this whole book because I wasn't ready to stop talking to Scott. I wasn't ready for the final goodbye um, as it broods over us to be something that entered my reality. So I kept Scott in the present tense, not by trying to um, memorialise him, not by trying to eulogise him in a book, but just to keep talking to them, to keep the conversations that we had active together, to keep him in the present tense. The past tense is always longer and I wasn't ready for him to move into it because we had so many active conversations. And of course, it's just my voice that punctuates those, that keeps those stories going. Boyfriends has a lot to say about goodbyes. But one important lesson is that these final words aren't truly the last ones. You'll always be saying hello and well, you know. I think it's a valve within the conversation we're having with someone. All this stuff builds up behind it and we stop it for a moment and then we let it run on again. But it's important to stop it for a moment. It's important to take pace, take heed of what's around us, that moment in time. Where are we? Where is the person we miss? What has changed since then? And then let those fissures, that spill of emotion that's building up behind it, flock on. You know, goodbyes can punctuate our um, stages of healing. They can punctuate our lives, getting back to how they used to be, or, or at least how they, how they survive without the absence of that person or that thing that we're missing so much. Um, so yeah, I think they serve as little markers within a much wider emotional conversation. But if it feels nurturing, if it feels cathartic, make moments for those, marcher, those markers. I'm so drawn to anniversaries, not necessarily anniversaries of deaths or first meetings, but anniversaries of favourite moments. I feel that that's a much healthier way, a much more emotionally conducive way to look at the person you miss or to think about them, not strung together by the way they left, but by the way that they lived and by those moments that are most prominent to you in the memory, those things that you miss the most because they are your grief, which means they are the final manifestation of your love for that person. You're full up of all this love and you don't know where to put it now. So you have to do something with it to rewire it, to rewire the human circuit boards and turning into something of virtue. And are you still saying goodbye to Scott? I think so. I think, I mean, in that song, Hello, Goodbye. Hello and goodbye comes so much mm -hmm. at once. Every moment that rushes upon you and reminds you of the way you existed together also reminds you of the way that you separated. It reminds you of the way that things ended. But making it celebratory, making the goodbye celebratory is, I think, such a crucial thing to do. If we can't hug someone anymore, if we can't put our chests against each other and almost feel the heartbeat and the gesture of the goodbye that way. Let's try and do it cerebrally, cognitively, within the nation of our imagination, within our own cerebral cortex. Like, you know, dig up those memories and, and bask in them. So what can that tell us about how to say goodbye to a show like Tapestry? Michael says we should take into account all that we've been through together and then look ahead towards the future. 
people are already ruminating where they were and what shows they carried with them or what um, galvanization or buoyancy that gave them or lessons or edifications within the shows that they've been able to take out into their life and put into practice. Maybe they've become more fortified and complex beings for having had some of these conversations. Um, and I think definitely uh, deal with that, resonate with that, pay tribute to that. But we need to leave people looking to the future because the past is our armory for the battles ahead. But it's also, you know, our toboggan for the flume rides ahead at the same time. And I think we need to always leave people looking forward. It's progressive, it's productive, and everything about the past that we celebrate is going forward with us, whether we like it or not, you know. The dead don't leave till we do. Tapestry's last episode isn't until next week, but if saying goodbye is a process, I thought I would start practicing now. So once again, here's the rest of a Tapestry crew, McKenna. Hi. And Rosie. Hey. So my question to the both of you is, what's one thing about Tapestry that you miss or a lesson that you think will help you in the future? Well, I think that what I'll miss the most are our pitch sessions, because we would have epically long two to three hour pitch sessions uh, because someone would bring in an idea and that would spark conversation. So they were really, really in-depth discussions about big ideas. And I just loved riffing and thinking and learning from you guys. It was it was just really beautiful to have those conversations with you guys, learn so much, and uh, I will miss our pitch sessions. <laughs> McKenna, is there anything you'll miss or want to send off about the show? Oh my gosh, uh, everything. I mean, it's been so hard to distill this to other people when I talk about what a loss this is, but I'm so proud of the show and the breadth of stories we covered I'm so grateful to everyone who took the time to sit with me and tell me their story. I mean, Tapestry was the first show I ever worked on. It was this team that just let me discover how to be a storyteller for the first time. And I have you, Armand, and Rosie, and Mary to thank for that. Thank you, McKenna. And uh, the other thing um, that has struck me at this point, we asked our listeners to write in and to call in with their thoughts on the program. And so many of them have reflected what we were trying to do. You know, as a team, we decided we wanted to try and bring light and hope and joy and help people navigate, you know, the complicated business of life. And uh, so many of you writing to us have uh, let us know that, that it connected with you. And we greatly appreciate all your letters and all your calls. Armand, I want to know, like, where does this leave you? I think uh, a show is nothing about the people who make it, and I'm going to miss you both a lot. Um, thank you for the both of you. Um, I've worked on a lot of shows, and Rosie, you were the first person I met working on Tapestry, and I knew that this was going to be a safe place and a fun place to work the day I met you, and you complimented me on some very bright pink pants. Uh, <laughs> it's a good color. <laughs> I did throw them out, but they, they, I have never forgotten that compliment. Truly, I am going to miss working volume. And I know it's weird to say goodbye because we all work for the same company and we'll run each, to each other um, from time to time, but I'm going to miss making this show with you. Us too. I guess I didn't even really say it in that conversation, but I should try. Thank you, everyone. Say hi in the halls. Thank you for all the good times, all the amazing people we got to meet, and for all the light you shine on the path ahead. 
Goodbye, Tapestry. Until next time. Michael Peterson is poet-in-residence at the University of Edinburgh and the author of Boyfriends. We reached him in Edinburgh. Thank you so much, Armand and Rosie and McKenna, for all your work this week and all the weeks. A reminder to all of our listeners that no matter how many times we say goodbye, this isn't the end, not yet. We still have one more episode recorded in front of a live studio audience. You'll hear that December 31st. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by the amazing people you've heard throughout today's episode, Armand Egbali and McKenna Hadley-Burke. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. See you next week for one last edition of Tapestry. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.